Thank you, Casey and worship team. <clears throat> Good morning again. Take your uh, copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We will be back in the Gospel of John next week, Lord willing, but this morning I want to <clears throat> step aside from that and consider the resurrection in terms of what it means. And not just what it means, we know what it means theologically, but what it means to us in, in daily life, the practical implications of the resurrection of Christ. So uh, let's hear now the word of the Lord. I'm going to look at, uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 14. So let us hear now the word of the living God as inspired by his spirit. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You want to underline something under that, that we might walk in newness of life. For if we have been, have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's how we then must live. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present to God as those, yourselves to God, as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And this is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray. God in heaven, we cast ourselves upon your mercy today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear the incredible implications for our lives of Jesus' resurrection it's not just something we come and celebrate once a year and then go out to eat in nice clothing. It's not that at all. But it is the world-changing, mind-bending, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. That you vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And in this reality... We have life in Christ. We have life eternal. We have the ability to live a life to honor and glorify you in the here and the now. So God, I pray you would help us 
Give us grace to see that. And God, if there be one here who doesn't know you, then today, Lord, I pray you'd open their eyes and stop their deaf ears to see their lost estate, to see their need for a Savior, to see that there's a certainty of death just as there's a certainty of life and a certainty of your judgment. And God, they flee to you and find mercy and find grace in their time of need and walk no longer after the passions of their flesh, but they'd walk after your glory. God, we love you and praise you and thank you for the privilege now of worshiping you uh, in this central act of Christian worship, the preaching of your word. So give me grace to preach your word faithfully now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, and I've preached a sermon on this at some point in the past, <clears throat> Paul asked the question, what if Jesus is not raised from the dead? What if... The resurrection of Christ is just fiction. Why? What, what then? What now? And then he teases out all the implications. And the implications, brothers and sisters, are staggering and frightening. Well, for one, he says, if, you, if Christ be not raised from the dead, then we are all men most to be pitied. Why? Well, because we're here making some show of piety at least one day a year. I got stuck in traffic this morning at big church. Don't usually get stuck in traffic, so we go to church on this day, right? But he said, you're just wasting your time if Christ be not raised from the dead. He says, you're still in your sins, and you will pay for your sins. Somebody's going to pay for your sin, and it will be you if Christ is not raised from the dead. But he goes on to say, and gloriously so, but Christ is risen from the dead. And so since he has risen from the dead, there are massive implications. Not just in eternity. Yes, we have eternal life. But there are massive implications in the here and the now. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. And that's why I've, I've chosen this text. In Romans chapter 6. I love this book. Many of you love this book. Someday I'm going to preach through this book. Maybe after I get done with John, like four years from now or whenever it's going to be. But I want to preach through Romans. Every preacher wants to preach through Romans. I've got a friend who's doing that right now. Lloyd-Jones did it for 15 years. We won't do that here probably. I don't know if I'll even live 15 years. You could spend 50 years in it. But it's a beautiful text. Oh, the Lord has risen. And here are the staggering implications. Just as they are staggering if he hasn't risen from the dead, if it's fiction... So they're staggering if he has, and we believe as Christians, of course, that he has, and we believe it on good, good evidence that we have in, in, Christ, in the Gospels. I think sometimes we think of salvation, our salvation, only in terms of, of Good Friday. We think of the cross, and we think of eternal life. But without the historical reality of the resurrection, uh, resurrection Sunday, there is no salvation, and our faith is futile, and we just as well be at the golf course this morning, right? We don't believe that. So I want to see three glorious uh, practical implications. It's very simple this morning. Be very straightforward about this. Three glorious implications of the resurrection of Christ. And I mean practical implications for us in the here and the now. And here's the first one. It's that we died with Christ in his death. I'm going to bracket that. We died with Christ in his death and were raised with him in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. You know, people say, well, Christians, they don't look like Christians. They're hypocrites. They you know, I see a person who claims to be a Christian. They live this certain way. They don't live a godly life. And we sympathize with that, don't we? Because we are raised to walk in newness of life. Not in the old man. We're going to see this, but in newness of life. And Paul asked the, to get the context here, Paul begins with this question. He said, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Now here's the context and why I ask that question and why that question is pertinent in every age, in this age uh, especially today. Paul's in the middle of this lengthy section on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's asking this theoretical question because he's being asked this question as a pastor. I've been asked this question many times because of what I, the theology I believe. But the question is in response to Romans 5.20. Where he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Because then the question was, well, if sin increases grace, then why don't we just sin a lot so God will show a lot of grace? And he's saying, come on, that's ridiculous. Come on, gang. Paul says, that's, that's absurd. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, by no means. It's emphatic response. He said, in other words, they're asking him, if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus and God does it, then why, do we, why does it matter how we live? It's all by grace. And it's a good question, isn't it? And if you believe in a theology, a big God theology, a theology of grace, the doctrines of grace, whatever you like to refer to it, you're going to answer this question. Well, if salvation is by grace alone and God chose us before the foundation of the world, then it doesn't matter how we live. And Paul says, God forbid it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. No, by no means he here. He responds strongly. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I think many of our, many of our translations aren't emphatic enough. J.B. Phillips, and as only a Brit could put it, puts what a ghastly thought, what a ghastly thought. You can just hear that, can't you? And that's the proper response. What a, what a terrible thought. No, that's not the gospel. Rather, we can, we're free to sin, free to live any way we want to. No, 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 no. Now, in the Reformation, Roman Catholics accused reformers of antinomianism. What is antinomianism? Sounds like a cattle disease or something, doesn't it? Well, it's not a cattle disease. Anti, think of anti, break it down with me. Anti means against, right? Nomianism or nomos is the Greek word for law. So against the law. These are, they accuse, the Roman Catholics accuse the reformers of saying, well, uh, we, we, the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments, the uh, moral law of God has nothing to say to believers today. Of course, we don't believe that, do we? That's not true. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true at all. They accused him of being against the law, of seeking to live any way he wanted to. Uh, you can go, you can murder, you can steal, you can do whatever. You can, hey, you can be mean to your parents. You can covet all these things freely because you're saved by grace. And Paul says, no, God forbid it. That's not the way we think at all. That's not what Scripture teaches. And the fear was it would give people a salvation by grace alone to give people a license to sin. And Paul says, God forbid it. Now, James 2 deals with this, right? We're justified by faith alone, but we know that faith, uh, faith alone is not alone, right? A faith that saves is not a faith that's alone. Justifying faith is never alone. Good works are evidence of genuine faith. I love the way uh, James Kennedy used to put it. He said, justification by faith is a man's uh, affirmation before God. It's justification by works is aff affirmation before man. Because how do we know you're a Christian? Well, we know it by your love. We know it by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control on some level, right? And you say, well, boy, you're really convicted. There's a lot of those I don't really do. Well, you know, that's what sanctification is about, right? We're being made like Jesus. But we're to be seeking those things, right? And that's what a Christian is, a person who seeks those things, to seek the fruit of the Spirit. They don't think the way they used to think. They don't love the things they used to love. As one old preacher put it when I was growing up, he said, it's almost like we've had a taste bud transplant. I think that's a pretty good analogy, right? I hear that all the time, but it's right. We're new in Christ. We're different. And we're growing in it. We're growing in it. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. When we come to Christ, he says here, we died in sin. 
there's a false teaching out there that says, well, there's sort of two levels of Christians. There's the carnal Christian. They've made Jesus their Savior. And at some point in the future, they'll make him their Lord. Well, I've got news for them. We don't make him anything. We don't make him Lord. He's our Savior and Lord, or he's not our Savior or Lord, right? He's both. No such thing as, well, I'll sort of live in sin for a while, then eventually I'll give my life over to God and I'll stop doing those sins. And I was a carnal Christian, now I'm a sanctified Christian. No such thing. <clears throat> Paul would say, God forbid it, right? Because the old man is put to death. That's what he's saying here. <clears throat> when we came to Christ, we died to sin. Not meaning we won't sin anymore, okay? Hear me clearly. In Christ's death, <clears throat> excuse me, came the death of our old man. So there's two people here Paul talks about. There's the new man you are in Christ, or new woman, and there's the old man you were before you came to Christ. The old man is put to death in Christ's death. And nevertheless, we know just because that's true, the old man doesn't go down easy, does he? He keeps kicking and screaming, rising up inside of us. But in a very real sense, we are crucified with Christ. So that the new life in Christ is just that. He said, if anyone is in Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read this earlier. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. What he's doing, he's reshaping you, reforming you, making you to the person you were supposed to be before Adam's sin. That's where <clears throat> the word is literally being taken back to the head. We're being taken back to the way we were supposed to be. Now, we're going to reach that in this life and sinless perfection? Well, no. We know that, right? Some of us sinned this morning before we came. I'm not, you know, we're, we're, we're maybe sinning now. I don't know. If you had little children you had to get ready this morning, I know you were at least tested. You know, I had to go with that for a while, right? And you were tested and tried, and here you are. You've made it through uh, that whole cauldron of, you know, or if you had big children, I guess. I don't know. But the old man is put to death. If any man's in Christ, he's new, he's made new. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Is that what your life looks like? Are you being made new? Is there a new sense? Is there a new desire in you for holiness? Maybe you're not being holy perfectly, of course, and there are sins that frustrate you all the time, but do you desire to see them put to death? Now, I love the image Paul uses here. I'm a Baptist, and so, of course, I love this, and you do too, I trust. Paul uses baptism as a metaphor to give us a picture of this. And it's a beautiful picture of believers' baptism by immersion, all right? And I think argue strongly for our view of baptism, but that's a total different sermon, okay? I just had to say that in case any of my Presbyterian friends are watching, and I doubt they are because they're in church this morning. He says here in uh, verses 3 to 5, we're baptized into his death and raised with him. He says, do you not realize, do I know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We were buried. Now, see that language? We were buried. Buried, right? Under the water. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, with the result that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, here it is, in newness of life. We're baptized into his death. Raised with him. Christians die to sin when they are baptized into Christ. Of course, we know that baptism doesn't magically kill the power of sin, right? Or else we would want to be baptized every week, probably every day, you know, right? We, no, 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 it doesn't magically kill your desire to sin. Baptism's not what saves us. But in our baptism, God gives us a tangible sign of his promise of redemption. 
It's an outward sign of an internal reality, right? That's what it is. We're declaring our break with the world and our allegiance with Christ, that we will walk with Him as closely as possible in the newness of life. All the processes that are wrought through the redeeming of Christ are contained in the sign. I mean, I think baptism is a, a sign of our being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, being made new, being born again. It does not cause our regeneration. We want to be very careful and very clear about that. I believe that's a heresy. I believe that's a false teaching that we're regenerated by baptism. There are some who claim to be evangelicals who believe that, sadly. But it's a sign of regeneration. That's where they make the mistake, I think. It's a sign of God's promise that all who believe will, in fact, be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a sign. It's, it's a break. Pointing to something far greater in us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of our final glorification, a sign of our identification with Christ. Identify with Christ now and no longer the world. Of course, our washing, there's a lot more in there. We could, boy, I'll preach a sermon on baptism again soon, I'm sure. But we're in Christ. He's our champion. And I think believer's baptism gives us a clear and powerful picture of our redemption. Being plunged beneath the water, being brought out of the water, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. You get the picture here? That's why I think this scripture defends believer's baptism by immersion very clearly. Not just here, but many other places. We're baptized into his death and burial. We are also baptized into his resurrection. That's why Resurrection Sunday is so glorious. Why we celebrate it every single week, right? We've been raised in him. Raised in him. This is what brings you new life, right? You've been raised. You've been brought out of the ground if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're still, you're still buried. You're, you're a rotting, stinking, filthy corpse. Dead in trespasses and sins. And you need to flee to him today. Not to be baptized, but to, to come to him in faith, in repentance and faith. He said, we're buried to him, verse 4, buried with him, we're raised with him. There's a parallel here. We already have the down payment of eternal life in our souls by having been given the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment, Paul calls it in Ephesians. The sealing of the Holy Spirit seals us to him, that we belong to him, never to belong to someone else again. We're secure, aren't we, because of his grace, because of his mercy, I mean, how can someone who participates in the power of Christ's resurrection continue in sin that grace may abound? It's not possible. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. What does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. How can we do that? Well, he explains that in the rest of the passage. You see the logic here. He says, here's, here's the doctrine, now here's what it means. Now, second main point, verses, here I see this in verses 5 to 11. Christ defeated sin. You say, I can't defeat sin. You're right, but he defeated sin and death. We face death every day, right? We don't know our time, and they no longer reign over us. You want to get, you want to shed the fear of death, come to Christ. We're all afraid of death, right? Even after we're saved, there's a certain, there's a certain fear of the unknown, isn't there? If we're honest about that, and the writer of Hebrews admits that. So we've been in fear of death all of our lives. But we don't fear it in the same way. I want us to see two giant words under this point in verse 5 here. Let me read verse 5. For if we have been united, there we go. You United States citizens. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
two of the most important words in all the Bible, in Christ, united with him, in Christ. Paul uses this phrase all through his epistle, Ephesians. You see this writ large throughout Ephesians. We are in Christ. A little prepositional phrase there for you grammarians. But it's beautiful because it is eternal life. Life is in that phrase. We're in Christ. If we've come to him by faith. This union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize the relationship between believers and Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are like Christ. We are with Christ. All those things, all those prepositions. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are like Christ. And we are with Christ. We will be with Christ one day, right, if we're in him. In him to be with him. And there are massive implications, again, for our daily lives and our identity as new creatures in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, remember, he's a new creation. We've died with him, verse 5 says, first of all. By the Holy Spirit, every person who, is in, who believes in Christ is joined to Christ spiritually. This is sometimes what theologians call our mystical union. Our mystical union, the spiritual union with Christ. If we're believers, we're in Christ, Christ is in us. In a spiritual sense, we died with him at Calvary. When he was dying on that cross on that first Good Friday, we were in him. We were dying with him. The old man, the old woman, the old person is us with dying with him, in him. That day, that's what was happening. You know, we sing that old song, when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You were on his mind when he was on the cross. What a glorious truth, right? This is very personal. Salvation is personal. We've rightly said over the years after the Reformation, salvation is for individuals. Yes, it's corporate in a sense, but it's also for, it's mainly, it's, it's personal, isn't it? He's our, we use the language and some object to it, but I don't. Come to Jesus as your personal Savior. Well, yeah, he does. He saves persons, right? Individuals. That's, that, that's right. When he went to the cross, he went not for himself, but for his sheep. He did a work that we could not possibly do. We would never do for ourselves. We cannot, we would not save ourselves. In his death, Christ bore our sin. We talked about this at the Good Friday service the other night. When he died, he did not simply die for us. We, by virtue of our spiritual union, died with him. And in his resurrection, we are raised with him. You see how this works? This is what Paul's driving at here. And, and I can't think of anything more practical. If you die today, this will be very practical, won't it? And that just brings us right down to the brass tacks, doesn't it? So, well, that's, that's a lot of theological talk. But no, if you die today, this will be very, very, very practical. If, you want to do that, if I'm standing by your deathbed praying for you, this is going to be very, very, very practical, like that. I can't tell you how many people over the years I've stood beside their bed and they're dying. Saints of God, this was precious to them. I've even seen some who weren't in Christ, and this was not precious to them, and it was very, very obvious. And those are two very different kinds of death to die. So when he died, we died in him. The resurrection was God the Father's amen to Jesus' sacrifice. He said, you made the sacrifice, and I accept it for your people. God said, he raised him from the dead and said, in raising him from the dead, you made the sacrifice, I accept it. And so we're in him because of that, because of him accepting it. And accepting it as payment for the sins of his people, God accepted our resurrection to new life as well. His resurrection and our resurrection are vindicated at the same time, right? 
He goes on to say we're raised with him. We who are in Christ share in the power of his resurrection, not merely after we die and go to heaven, but right now, this morning. Because everyone who trusts savingly in Jesus Christ has been raised already from spiritual death in the resurrection. I think this speaks of our new birth or regeneration. And look what it does for us, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self, okay, that's a key, our old self, our old man, our old woman, who we used to be, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that with the result that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I hope you see already the implications of this. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So verses 6 and 7 tell us we are freed from sin through Christ's death. Because of the fall, I mean, we all know this. This is Christianity 101. We're born slaves to sin. I mean, you're either, you're enslaved to one of two things in this life. One of, you're either enslaved to sin, you're enslaved to Christ. It's just that simple. Everyone who's outside of Christ, they're enslaved to sin. You say, what about good people? My nice dad, they're enslaved to sin. Because they're just doing good things for some godless motive. Because Paul said, anything that doesn't come from faith is what? It's sin. We do good things sometimes to bring attention to ourselves, don't we? But we're born slaves to sin. There's no inclination whatsoever in our souls toward the things of God. We're inclined away from it. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are children of wrath, under God's wrath. The news is terrible for those outside of Christ. They've got no interest, no passion, no love for God. If you have no interest, no passion, no love for God, this may be telling of you and your heart. It may be that you're not a believer. I don't know. No passion for Christ, no love for God, no love for neighbor, no interest in God. Spiritually dead, Scripture tells us. We're slaves to pride and greed and jealousy and anger and sexual immorality and covetousness, selfishness and idolatry and 10,000 sins besides. We're just slaves to ourselves and slaves to whatever impulse is controlling us at that very moment. Whatever sinful impulse, that's who we are outside of Christ. The news is not good, is it? We have the good news of the resurrection, don't we? Sin is not only our nature. Paul tells us here it is our slave master. Free will, the notion that we are free to choose either good or evil, power contrary choice, that is unbiblical. It's not biblical. The Bible says we are, we are free, if we're outside of Christ, only to sin. We will choose our strongest impulse and for outside of Christ our strongest impulse is always going to be away from God yes it will be toward religion but a religion and a God of our own making a God who looks a lot like us Jonathan Edwards argued this he said we have a we don't like natural ability in other words nothing's keeping us from believing but it's moral inability that we have we don't have an ability to do anything for God so the will isn't bonded to sin the will needs to be set free by the unilateral work of God's grace and mercy we see that here in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. We can't, the law of God, of the sinner, the, the man of the flesh cannot keep the law of God. He cannot, 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 cannot. He cannot love the law of God without the grace of God setting them free. Augustine, the great church father, speaks of sin as 
Satan riding on a horse. I love this picture. Very vivid. Satan is riding on a horse. Before the grace of God breaks through and changes us, we have one rider. He's riding your heart if you're outside of Christ. Your rider, the one riding the saddle of your heart, he says, is Satan. He has his bit, the bit in our teeth. In Kentucky, we ought to really get this right. There's horses everywhere we look. <laughs> and Satan is that jockey, and he's riding. He's taking you right down the stretch. You come with that bit and that bridle, a bit in your mouth, and he is guiding you wherever he wants you to go. That's the picture Augustine's painting for us. He holds the reins. When he turns our head into the left towards sinful anger, there we go. When he turns us to the right toward lust or pride or arrogance or stealing or self-love, we gallop in that direction freely and openly and gladly. When he says, whoa boy, we stop. When he says, giddy up, there we go. But once we're converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, we have a new rider in the saddle, but... It's not as if Satan says, hey, jump off. I'm going to give you a turn, God. I'll let you ride the horse now. Here we go, right? It doesn't work that way. He's going to fight for the saddle, right? He's going to try to keep, he's going to try to stay on the, the horse here. He does it. He, he gives up the reins reluctantly, Augustine said. He'll do everything in his power to get the bit back in our mouth to recover us again as his slaves. But here's the difference. Since we also have a new rider, a new rider who has taken the reins, we have the power to fight against his enticements through, uh, throughout our whole Christian life, and we must, because Satan is furious. We've left him through this spiritual resurrection, which came through Christ's resurrection. The Spirit of God has raised us from the dead, and so we do have a new rider, we, but we must fight sin, right? It must be a, it's a daily fight. It's a daily war within us. To so say, who's going to ride that stallion in your heart? Is it going to be the Holy Spirit? Is it going to be Satan? You can think of it this way. In some sectors of the ancient world, the penalty for murder was to tie the corpse, the murdered, to tie the corpse to the body of the murderer and let him drag that rotten, stinking corpse around with him. Something Paul is maybe talking about that when he refers to the body of sin we carry around with us. We still carry a body of sin around with us, right? The sin nature we brought into this world is like a putrid, decaying corpse, a body of death. We still have to carry it around until we get to heaven. We still fight, don't we? And that's sanctification. That's not salvation. I think the Roman Catholic Church, they, co they collapse the two in on each other and confuse salvation for sanctification. And some professed evangelicals do as well. But the body of sin, whom he calls in verse 6, our old self has been brought to nothing and we're no longer slaves to it. That's the difference. You still sin, but you're not slaves to sin. The power of cancel sin has been broken. Our union with Christ destroys the reign of sin over our bodies. Our bodies are now living under the reign of a new king, King Jesus. And we may bear holy fruit in his service to love him and to love our neighbor. We couldn't do that before, right? But now we may fight this fight of faith successfully and put off sin. You have the power now to, to walk away from sin, to walk away from that temptation. But if he's not living in you, you do not, you'll just, you're just going to, you're at the mercy of Satan. You're going to, and he has no mercy at all. He's driving out here, here this bodily existence that was once dominated by the cravings of sin has given away to a passion for righteousness and holiness. Verse 18, listen to this. 
on down, chapter 6. Having been set free from sin, having become, look at that, look at that, slaves of righteousness. You were once slaves, slaves to sin, but now you're a, still a slave, but you're slaves to righteousness. You're slaves to Satan or slaves to Christ. That's one way we can put it. And because of his resurrection, now you're his slaves. Slaves to righteousness. And he's a wonderful taskmaster, unlike the slave to sin. Set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness by the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Whereas we were once following after the world and the flesh and the devil, that unholy trinity, now we want to be like Christ. And that's how we know we're saved, isn't it? It's one of the evidences. What, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't mean that literally. <laughs> what do you want to be more than anything else? You want to be like Jesus more than anything else? Is that your greatest desire? Then, then that's, that's, that's good. That's evidence that you're a Christian. Now, those desires come and go and realize that. And now we have power over uh, God. There's, there's, God has exercised power over physical death too. I mean, by nature, we're born into this world dead on arrival spiritually, as I said, but alive physically. You say, boy, I'm dead in my, sin, in my sins, but I've got to live in this world. I've got I to live a life. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to death, both spiritual death, physical death. I mean, it's been said that only two things certain in life are death and taxes. You can cheat on taxes. You can cheat on your taxes. Well, it's tax day, by the way, just FYI. <laughs> and you can cheat on your taxes. Don't do that. You can't cheat death. Last time I checked, 100 out of every 100 people die. There's a date with your name on it. Could be today. Who knows, right? I've seen young, I've seen a young person. I'm going to take you to the graveyard back in my hometown where my family's buried, and there's all kinds of young people in there, teenagers, teenagers. Now there's old people. There's middle-aged people, all kinds of people. It's appointed a man, Scripture says, once to die, and after this, the judgment, right? Once to die. My grandfather, he was 52 years old, good health, went to sleep and never woke up. I don't think he expected to die that night, but he did. I read a story recently about a 34-year-old mother here, multiple children just dropped dead without warning. Gone. One of my dearest friends growing up, his wife, I told you this about three weeks ago, she got COVID, then got pneumonia. She was in perfect health, 55 years old, same as me, grew up with her, Gone. Gone. Man knows not his time. Beloved, don't trifle with this. Don't trifle with the time just because you're young. I, I used to be young. I'm still you know, not too old, but I used to be young. I felt, man, I felt invincible. I felt like I was going to live forever. I know how you feel. I don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> Middle age has got me over that rather quickly. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to fear death because he defeated death. You are immortal. Have you come to Christ? Is this settled today? If you died today, where would you be tonight? Is this settled? Really, this is the message. And this is the message every week, is This is the message above all messages. Salvation. Today's the day of salvation. Flee to him. Flee. You want to be in him, in Christ, in this resurrection. On that last day, you want to be in that number of God's elect in this passage is full of good news we've seen bad news but he says in verse 5 we certainly will be united with him in his resurrection this is explained in verses 8 to 10 
There's a future resurrection of the body. You're going to die and you're going to come out of the ground someday when God says, come out on that day, that great getting up morning. In the same unit of the believer of the Christ is a guarantee of it. That unit of the Christ guarantees you will come out and you'll be with him forever. But you're going to come out. The question is, do you belong to him? Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to Christ this morning? Because he says, if we died with him, verses 8 to 10, we will live with him. And this is one of the most glorious promises and implications of Christ's resurrection in two senses. One in the future sense. We will rise from the dead literally bodily and spend eternity in paradise with him in a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. We will live somewhere. As I've said before, so I've said again, Elvis lives somewhere. But the question is, where? And I'm not worried about Elvis, I'm worried about us. It's my concern. This Sunday morning, just like it is every Sunday morning, it's so easy to be deceived. So if we died with him, we'll live with him in the future, but also in the present. Because of our union with Christ, we're risen spiritually to walk in newness of life. Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Death has no dominion over him, he says here. Death did not have dominion over Christ for very long. All right, just three days. That's it. He was only vulnerable to death because he was bearing our sin. That's it. God made himself, God made his son vulnerable to death. He chose that, right? He chose death. But after he paid for our sin, death became powerless, and so it is for you. Death is powerless. You, if you die today, you're in Christ, you can look death square in the eye and say, Oh, death, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? Because the sting of death has been taken away for all those who are in Christ. Because Jesus paid it all, and the Father raised him from the dead. Verse 10 says, The life Christ lived and the life Christ gives is not like a vapor that passes away. Christ who is alive lives forever. Death is no longer a threat to him. This is why Jesus told the ladies at Lazarus' tomb just before the cross, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. He was going to the cross and he knew he was going to come out of the ground. He knew he was going there to defeat death for us. Revelation 1, 17 and 18 says, Fear not. Jesus said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, death and hell. Christ has taken the keys to death. He's gone down inside the keys, down inside the door of death, and he's unlocked it from the inside, and he's come out for you and for me. You see the picture there? John the Revelator is painting for us. He's taken the keys. He's got the keys to the kingdom and he unlocked it. If you're in him, if you're in him, he says, consider yourself since this is true, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. In verse 11, Paul's making this practical application of our union with Christ, his death and resurrection. Because Christ rose again, all that said in verses 1 to 10 is true of you. All that. True of you, true of me, for all who are in Christ. Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 3 says, your life is hidden in him. I love that picture. It's hidden behind Christ, right? God looks down, he sees him and not you. That's how you can be justified by faith because of his righteousness, his spotless righteousness, which is what it takes to get into heaven. It's true of you. 
Where I grew up, someone will say, well, you going to church tomorrow? And you might say, I reckon. My wife loves it, and I say, I reckon. My boy said, I reckon. That means I think so. And he says, we're to reckon. We're to think of ourselves here. This is how we're to think of ourselves, our identity Differently in light of Christ's death and resurrection for us. We're to think of ourselves as being dead to sin. Reckon yourself, think of yourself as dead to sin. And new life, you have new life in the power of the gospel and in the spirit of God. The old self, ancient history. Dead, gone, goodbye. Yet it's kind of like D-Day in World War II. We know, now we know from all these years of history, looking back, that the war was over after D-Day, right? They were done. The Germans were done. Yet the war lasted for about another year until victory over year, VE Day, was declared, right? And that's kind of how it is with you. Yes, you're still at war, but victory is won. It's done. You have, Christ has parachuted into the beach and he's defeated the enemy. And he's come out of the ground. He's defeated death. That enemy for you being made alive in Jesus. And we need to see this as central to our new identity. It could not have been so without his resurrection from the dead. You see the practical implication there? That's who you are. You're risen in Christ, a new person in Christ. And sin does not have dominion over you. It is no longer your slave master. We're alive to God in Christ. What a glorious truth. We can say with Paul, and I love this. This is my life verse. We have a life verse. Well, here's mine, okay? For I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's who I am. That's who you are. It's like a black hole. A few years ago, astronomers think they discovered a, a black hole finally in outer space. What is a black hole? Well, it's a collapsed star of such density and gravity that nothing can escape from it. Not even light once it goes in the, the center. When an object reaches the center... And some have speculated that for reasons beyond most people's ability to grasp that an object might go through the center of the black hole and shoot through the hole and pass in another time period or period of kind of existence, we don't know. But we know this, once something goes in, it won't come out. And that's who you are. You've gone into Christ and you're not coming out. You have security in him. He is, he is keeping you by faith alone, right? He is doing it and giving you faith, enabling you to believe. You died to sin and been raised to newness of life in Christ and you cannot come out. That is now who you are and that's who you're going to be, who you should strive to be. Anyone who's been united to Christ has died to sin, is on his way to glory, can never return to his old former way of living. The old man is dead. The old woman is dead. And you've been joined to the one who's, who will still be there when heaven and earth, including black holes, have passed away. Let's not stay with eternal realities. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of our union with him, Christ and his death and resurrection, we've been delivered from the power of sin in this life, which is my final point, Paul's main point of application. And it's this, and this is going to be very short. A new king sits on the throne of our hearts, and he enables us to live in obedience to Christ. Verses 12 to 14. Paul says, therefore, he uses that. And we all, of course, ask, what's it therefore? That means... Since all that is true, everything up to now is true, then this, this is how we live. This is how we live. He gives two commands here, two imperatives, two commands. The first one is, in verse 12, Let sin therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Since you have this new identity, then you must also pursue a new way of living. 
Let sin therefore not reign, R-E-I-G-N, like a king, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because of Christ and his resurrection, this power is now living inside of you. As I, you hear me say all the time, Christ, God has unzipped you and climbed into you and the person of his Holy Spirit and now living out of you, transforming you. Of course, there's always that war between the flesh and the spirit. The old man won't go down easily, will he? But you will take ground now because the spirit lives in you. You will take ground. It's like an enemy. You'll fight the war daily and you'll take ground. And sometimes you'll, you'll give ground. Sometimes it'll feel like you're taking ground by inches. It'll be like World War I. <laughs> sometimes it'll feel like you're losing the war, that Satan and sin are gaining ground on you. That's, that's sanctification, right? That's the way it is. At least it's been in my life. Many times I feel like I've given a lot of ground in a given day. But God has given you his spirit to resist all the attempts of sin of the enemy to recover his dominion over his heart, over your heart. And so he gives a second imperative, a second command. He says, therefore, do not present your bodies to sin, meaning your physical bodies, not the body of Christ, but your physical bodies, as instruments of right unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of righteousness. You're not to give your body to sin. An instrument of sin, an instrument, but now you can, you are able by the Spirit's power to give your body as an instrument of righteousness. You were once ruled by sinful desires, but you must no longer, because you can now longer, no longer yield to them. You can now resist them. You must no longer yield to the old sinful desires, because now you have the power living inside of you, because of Christ's death and resurrection, to resist. And brothers and sisters, what is the church but a resistance movement in every way you can be a resistance movement, right? And a part of it is the ability to resist sin, and that's why we need each other. We help each other resist sin and Satan and temptation. That's why we come together. That's why we hold one another accountable. That's why we have relationships throughout the week with each other, love one another, hold one another accountable. That's why we do church discipline, frankly. It's a part of that. You must give your whole self, body and soul, to God. He will brook no rivals. Paul sees this as the secret, if you will, to sanctification. I don't like the secret to this or that usually, but I think that's what he's driving at here, to our sanctification. We're to be warriors for righteousness. Yes, it is by grace, but it is certainly not passive. You're in a war for your souls. It is not passive every day. You'll be tempted by your former passions, but you must not let those desires regain control. You must wage war on them you must do this every day. As one old Puritan put it, you'll be killing sin or it will kill you. And that's true, right? Because if any man be in Christ, he is what? Say it with me. He is a what? A new creation. I realize it's late. We got started about 15 minutes late, so you have to bear with me. If any man be in Christ, new creation, that's who you are. That's who you are. A new creation. Now because you're in Christ, you've been raised with him, have the spirit living in you. So when we get to verse 14, there's good news here. Verse 14. For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. Good news. It's a glorious promise. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. It's by grace. It's, it's going to happen. You're going to become holy if you're in Christ. You're going to become righteous. So it is by grace, isn't it? If, he, if you're at work, it's because he's at work in you. It's not a command but a glorious promise. Sin will not triumph over our lives because you have this new slave master 
and his yoke is easy and his burden is light, the slave master you have now is Christ. She explains in the rest of chapter 6. You've been set free to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I want to be careful here to point out in verse 14 that Paul's not saying a believer is free from the obligation to keep the moral law's demands. That's not what he's saying here. A lot of times we'll say, well, now I don't have to keep the law. It's got nothing to say to me because I'm now under grace. Well, that's antinomianism <laughs> we talked about earlier. But no, you have, you're able now to keep the moral law of God on some level as, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. What he's saying is that because the believer standing before God rests in Christ's righteousness and not in one's law keeping or works, the controlling principle in the life of the believer is the reign of grace that sets him free from the reign of sin and transforms him into the likeness of Christ. So salvation is by grace alone and sanctification is by grace alone, even though we participate in sanctification, right? I mean, go back to Augustine's metaphor of who's riding the horse, right? If you're in Christ, Satan no longer has the reins. Christ does through his Holy Spirit. Death is coming, but if you're in Christ, it won't kill you. For the believer, it is not death to die. Conclude with the good news. The penalty of sin has been broken and paid for, and the power of sin has been broken. Just to summarize my three points here, oh, there again. We died to Christ in his death and were raised with him in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. That's the first one. Again, this will help us live in the light of the resurrection. Secondly, Christ defeated the twin evils of sin and death and they, are no, they no longer have reign over us. And thirdly, a new king sits on the throne of your heart, enables you to believe or to live in obedience. He does enable you to believe. So how can we who died to sin still live, it, we live in it? Paul's words in Colossians 3 are true of us. And I close with this. If then you've been raised with Christ, beloved, seek the things that are above. For Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Put to death, here's the practical part, put to death, kill. Kill, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. You have put on a new self. You're a new person. You have a new identity. You put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And that's happening day after day after day after day. Love the new hymn we sing. And we didn't sing it this morning, but I'm going to quote it anyway. We are raised with him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And we shall reign with him where he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in this text and I've barely done it. I don't think I've even done it justice. But God, I pray that we would see ourselves as new creatures in Christ because of his resurrection and we would walk in newness of life. And God, we would not be deceived if we're not in Christ, that we would that would be exposed. We would know that today. Your spirit would expose that. And we would flee to Christ. And we would not leave here today till eternity is settled. And we no longer have to fear death. Because we know that we know that we know that Christ has defeated death in our place for us. And he's risen from the dead. And he is Lord. And we're adopted into his family. Oh God, do that in us and give us grace to live, to, def to, to, to fight sin throughout the week.
out of this great reality of his resurrection. For your, we might live no longer for our glory, but for yours. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.